you have your Bibles this morning. We've had a good time singing, good time praising the Lord. Let's uh, go to the book of Jeremiah this morning and uh, continue on as we come through the Word of God, helping us to grow and put the book together. As you know, we uh, started last week the third section of the Old Testament. I showed you how the Old Testament is broken down into three sections, and we started the last section last week with the book of Isaiah. And that last section, or the third section, is called the Prophets. And um, last week we saw the book of Isaiah, and this week we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah. Both of these men, right, right before the destruction of Jerusalem, and right before uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes down and uh, takes them into captivity. They both write to the book of Judah. In fact, uh, both of these men, these men are two of, of the greatest prophets of Judah that uh, preach in Judah's darkest times. There probably has never been, and it's hard to understand it from just reading the Bible, but when you go back and look at the accounts of history, when you go back and look at the material that's in the rest of the Bible and you can put it in perspective because you get somewhat of an understanding of how God works and how these times were. Uh, there was no more darker times in the history of the world uh, than this particular time. No nation, no nation went through uh, more bitterly what Israel went through, uh, but at the same time because of their own disobedience to, uh, to the Word of God. And therefore, as I said last week, the, the, the writings of the prophets are all books that are very negative. But I must say this, there is no more negative book in all the Bible than the book of, that Jeremiah writes. And he writes two books. He writes Jeremiah and Lamentations. We're going to look at Lamentations next week. And just because Isaiah has 52 chapters in it, and we're going to take quite a while this morning with it, and Lamentations only has five, don't get your hopes up next week, uh, it doesn't mean anything. But the content of Lamentations is incredible, and we'll have to look at that. But certainly there's no more negative books in all the Bible than the books of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Jeremiah, the name Jeremiah means cast out. And you're going to find that that phrase, cast out, is found 13 times in that book. You're going to find that the context of the book of Jeremiah, we talked last week of all the prophets, are going to be built around the second coming of Christ. That phrase, the day or that day, is found 75 times in 52 chapters. You're going to find terms throughout the book of Jeremiah that's going to help nail in for you the context. You're going to find it called the day of trouble, the day of desolation, the day of slaughter, the day of affliction, the woeful day, the day of evil, the day of vengeance, the day of calamity, and the day of spoil. All those references will be to the tribulation period going into the second coming of Christ, and it's, it's just filled throughout this book. This book is just filled with the downside of everything that is going to befall the nation of Israel. You'll find a couple of words showing up the first time in your Bible here in the book of uh, Jeremiah. In chapter 2, verse 19, you'll find the word backsliding showing up for the first time. In fact, you'll find it 13 times in the book of Jeremiah because Israel has, is a backsliding nation. We use that term in Christianity today, and unfortunately it's really not a term that is given to the church, though it, it somewhat seems appropriate, you know, in the way we talk about people and things sometimes, somebody being backslidden. But that term 
dynamically in the Bible is used for uh, the nation of Israel. And Israel backslides from God. It's impossible for a Christian to really backslide. It's one of those terms that really doesn't mean anything to a Christian, but we associate things with it. It's like the term in the world, you know, when somebody says, well, he had a nervous breakdown. Well, you know what, we all know what that means, but if you take that term, nervous breakdown, if that's true, and your nerves really break down, you, de- you died. <laughs> if your nerves break down, you're dead. But we use that term as a, as a collection, a catch-all, you know. It's like when you're sick, you don't want the wrong, the doctor says you got the flu, you know, it's just a, or a virus. Well, the word backslidden is like that. A Christian cannot backslide. You're in Christ. He's in you. It's impossible. But we use the word, and i do not trying to change uh, your concept on it. I'm just trying to uh, give you information so you know where these things come from. Jeremiah himself is a very interesting uh, man to study. He's called the weeping prophet. And uh, he's a prophet with a broken heart preaching a heartbreaking message. And he's bringing to the nation of Israel, whom he deeply loves, uh, the message of God's coming judgment because of their uh, ungodliness and because of their sin. He's the only man in the Bible commanded not to marry, and he's told that in chapter 16, verse 1. He's to stay a virgin. And the reason for that is, is because Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, being a picture of the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ, Jeremiah is a type of the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7 who are told to be virgins. He's called the man-child in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 15, and that itself is one of the most elusive titles in all of the Bible. It connects him someplace with Christ in the tribulation period. I've never been able to figure the thing out as far as Jeremiah, the man-child in Christ, but I do know this. Now, I know that when it comes to the Bible, I know that the, uh, the men that uh, in the New Testament, who were your common ordinary men, they knew more about the Bible than uh, any ten Bible scholars you could find today. And they understood and they knew and understood uh, things about the Bible that we don't know. I've been asking Bible study many, many times, you know, that uh, uh, there at the Mount of Transfiguration, when the apostles are standing there, and they're seeing Christ transfigured before them in chapter 17, verse 1, they know who Moses and Elijah is uh, standing on each side of Christ. And I've been asked many times, how do they know that? Well, the average Christian thinks, you know, that they're standing there with a copy of the New Testament in their pocket and they're looking it up as they go, you know. And that's not true. There is no New Testament written. The reason why they knew it was Moses and Elijah is because they knew their Old Testament. And they knew that the Bible said in the Old Testament many, many times, but particularly in the book of Malachi, that Moses and Elijah were going to show up with the Lord when he comes back as the two witnesses. They knew that. So when they see these two men with the Lord and the Lord is glorified, they know who he is. Now, you know, scholars have a tough time with that because, first of all, they don't believe that everything in the Bible is there by divine appointment. They believe that the Bible, any translation of the Bible, is just a mixture of of the message of God without really the truth of God. That you can't rely on everything in the Bible as being absolutely accurate. That you have to rely on them to lay it out for you because, you know, they have the mystical, magical power to look deep within the originals, you know, and come up with the nuggets that you and I need because we're so stupid we can't figure it out for ourselves. And God has entrusted the body of acknowledgement to a group of intellectuals about the Bible who, you know, will tell us what the Bible really means. And, of course, they always have a tough time with that. If you saw Thursday night, you saw how that even the punctuation in the Bible, the spelling in the Bible, it's all important. And I say all that to say this, Jeremiah is a strange character, and I don't fully understand it. 
I know he's connected with a man-child over there in Revelation chapter 12 and Isaiah chapter 66. The man-child is Christ in Revelation chapter 12 and in Isaiah, no question about it. I'm not sure of the connection, but I do know this. I know that the book of Jeremiah <coughs> figures into the tribulation period and the second coming in Christ probably like no other book in the Bible. And I also know this. Over in Matthew chapter 16, verse 14, one time Jesus was asking common ordinary people who people said that he was. And some of them say, well, you're John the Baptist. Some of them say you're Moses or Elijah. Some of them say you're the Christ. And then one guy says, and some people say you're Jeremiah. Now, that's, now the scholars would have you to believe that that's just stupid people trying to throw out offering guesses at who it was. And I'm telling you right now, that's not true. I'm telling you right now that a common, ordinary, common man in the Old Testament knew more about the Bible and Bible prophecy and the coming of Christ than any of the scribes and Pharisees put together. And when that man back there in Matthew chapter 16, verse 14 says, one of somebody says it's Jeremiah, I'm telling you right now, that is a key for anybody that's paying attention that Jeremiah is going to figure in something in the Jew in the tribulation period by coming back and being part of that like Moses and Elijah. How that figures into the man-child, I don't fully understand, but I know that it does. And it's an incredible, Jeremiah himself was an incredible concept to study when you look at him, uh, and then you better understand why he writes. The entire book of Jeremiah, doctrinally, as I've already said, is a picture of the tribulation period. Jeremiah, typified as a, a type of 144,000, going around that time, preaching, and all of the things that are going to be taking place during that time, you find in, in that great book. Now, we're going to follow the format like we did last week, because that format, I, I was kind of asking myself, as I was coming through the other books in the Bible, how am I going to do the prophets? Because the prophets have, first of all, so much information. The prophets so much all go together. And I could spend, you know, 20 hours just giving you the doctrinal application, weaving it all together, showing you how it worked in the tribulation of the second coming. But the problem with that is that these prophets, even though they have things that are written to the Jew that we need to know, man, there is a lot of inspirational concepts that uh, we need to understand. And last week, I think I hit upon the the, the way to do it, and that is to come through and show you doctrinally key phrases, key concepts, to give you the basic understanding of the chapters, and then come back and pull it together the same way uh, inspirationally, so that when you leave, you basically can step back at this book and see the divisions in it, see what those divisions represent, and then go back and put together an inspirational pattern for your own life of great principles. And that seems to be the way the Lord is directing to do it, so we're going to follow with that. So before we really jump into this, let's ask God's blessing and we'll get started this morning in His Word. Father, we do thank You and praise You for all that You do for us. We love You so much. We ask you today, Father, to open up our hearts, give us wisdom and understanding in all that we do, and we'll thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the book has three divisions in it. More appropriately, there are really three prophecies, and uh, they're all are built around the coming destruction. Chapter 1 through chapter 33, he gives a prophecy dealing with the destruction of, of Judah. Judah being the two southern tribes, and remember, this is who Isaiah and Jeremiah are writing to and preaching to. Chapter 34 through chapter 45 deals with the destruction of the city of Jerusalem itself. 
because Jerusalem was the city that was located within Judah that is the capital city for the nation of Israel and it gets destroyed. And so chapters 34 through chapter 45 deal with Jerusalem's destruction, the city. Chapter 46 through chapter 52 deal with the Gentiles' fate. And he goes through in each chapter and he, he, he lays out and shows you how and what he's going to do and deal with the Gentiles at the second coming of Christ. Now each of these, in each case, he shows us what is going to happen historically. Historically, this whole time element of the book of Jeremiah falls into the time period right around 606 B.C. In your Bible, it will be the last of the book of Second Chronicles. And you're going to find that this is taking place right before uh, God's judgment falls by bringing the Nebuchadnezzar down and destroying the Jerusalem and taking the southern tribes into captivity. Doctrinally, what you've got here is a picture of exactly what's going to take place uh, right before the tribulation period, right before the second coming of Christ, right during the tribulation period as God again brings the Antichrist this time, who Nebuchadnezzar is one of the 18 types of, in to destroy Jerusalem because of Jerusalem's sin and because they're turning away from God. Now, with that in mind, it brings up tremendous inspirational applications because the parallels between the time of the nation of Israel and God's judgment parallels the time that we're living in because both the nation of Israel and us as the church are living in the time right before the coming judgment of God. So the parallels are absolutely uh, overwhelming here, and that's what we want to try to hit on. I want to try to give you an overview using the same format, doctrinally, historically, inspirationally, so you can kind of figure it out where you're at, so that when you come to the book of Jeremiah in your own personal study, that you know what you're looking for that you know what you're reading for, and you begin to pull it all together and put it all together. Now, we're what we've got. Chapter 1 through chapter 33, we're dealing with him writing to Judah. And in chapter 1 and 2, we begin to see, Jeremiah begins to lay out for us what the real problem is here with Israel. And uh, there are places in the Bible where God just simply <clears throat> clears off a little spot and makes it very clear, very direct, and very understandable what the problem he's got with the nation of Israel and why they're in the mess that they're in. And uh, in chapter 1 and 2, we see that. And the verse I want to look at, well, you know, uh, you just can look it up later if you want. If you, if you want to try to run through some of these with me, that's fine. Is chapter 2, verse 21. And it shows you the real issue between God and the nation of Israel. Here's what he says in verse 21 of chapter 2. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed, how then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Now this is the story, and in that one verse you have everything you need to know of what God is doing here. When you go over to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you find when Christ shows up the first time, after the 400 silent years, when he shows up at the first coming, you find the nation of Israel rejects him again. And when they reject him, we know that the kingdom of heaven goes into parables. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, you have one of those parables that actually, one of those places where God just puts a parenthesis, goes back from Genesis right up to the time we are and beyond, showing you what has happened, why it's happened, what God intended, and how Israel responded, and why Israel has gotten in the mess that they're in. That's what you've got in chapter 2, verse 21. God intended Israel to be his choice vine. God intended Israel to be put in a place, Jerusalem, where she would bear fruit, and the world would eat of that fruit. 
that fruit in time was going to become the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament was a plowing of the field, a sowing of the seed. He plants Israel as a nation just like a man would go out in his garden and plant a vine tree, a vineyard, an olive tree, or whatever. And he plants that nation of Israel in that land, and then he does what a good gardener does. He fertilizes it. He cultivates it. He takes care of it. He procures it. He does everything that he's supposed to do. But in spite of that, this plant that God intended to be the lifeblood to the world turned against God and rejected God. And God, uh, now we find them in the book of Jeremiah where God is getting ready to judge them. God had a mission for the nation of Israel. God had a plan for the nation of Israel in a national sense, in a literal sense, that literally was going to impact the world. You got a glimpse of it under Solomon and David, especially Solomon, where the Bible says all the world comes into Jerusalem to worship at Solomon, where all the religions of the East and all the great religions of the world take back seat to the God of Israel and the God of this world. And God, through the nation of Israel, was going to interact that plan to reach the world. And of course... Israel was that plant that was planted in Jerusalem to bring forth fruit from which in time all of the world would, would partake of and find God uh, through that plant, the nation of Israel. The devil comes in and destroys it. In fact, he destroys it in such a way that here we are in chapter 2, God is telling us what God intended, his plan, his mission, and now God's going to come down and destroy them. In chapter 3... <clears throat> You see how that the nation of Israel, doctrinally, has lined up with the Antichrist. Historically, we know that it's, it's, it's all other gods that she's went with. In chapter 3, verse 3, it says this, Therefore, the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain. We've talked about the former and the latter rain before. And then he says something very interesting to the nation of Israel. Thou hast a whore's forehead. A whore's forehead. Now, that whore's forehead can be only one thing when you understand Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, which talks about the mother of harlots, the great whore, Babylon mystery religion. nation of Israel has embraced a whore's forehead. That simply means, from what we know from the book of Revelation, that in the tribulation period, every man, every woman is going to be forced to take the mark of the beast, either on their right hand or on their forehead. Israel has embraced the Antichrist and has taken up the whore's forehead. And that will show you exactly how the nation of Israel was going to make an alliance with the Antichrist or he with them in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Then we have chapter 4 through chapter 9, which deals with the total apostasy of the nation of Israel. Once they come to the place where they line up with the Antichrist, they're gone. In chapter 4, verse 30, God asks them, he says, what are you going to do? He says, you've decked yourself with, with ornaments of gold, you've painted your face, You've taken on all of, these, all of these things, and yet when you see the ornaments of gold and painting your face, how can one who knows the Bible not be remembering Proverbs chapter 5 and Proverbs chapter 7? The great harlot, the great whore, who stood on the street corner, who seduced men and seduced the nation of Israel. By what? Painting her face, making herself look like a harlot, and then embracing the nation of Israel as that young man and destroying him. And that's exactly what you've got that's taking place in the nation of Israel. you got chapter 6 and verse 9. It talks about the fact that they shall glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. You compare that with Romans 14 and Romans chapter 11. And you see the gleaning of the tribulation saints at the end of the second coming of Christ. In chapter 7 verse 31, he says they built the high places of Tophet 
which is in Hinnom, to burn the sons and daughters in the fire. Shows you now the depravity of the nation of Israel. It shows you where it goes when men and women forsake the Word of God and, and, and go step to such incredible depths. In a literal sense, who here would think of taking your child, and when you come down through here, it says the high places of Tophet. Tophet means drum. It talks about Hinron, that's Gehenna, south end of Jerusalem, where the dump was. That's where Molech, in Jeremiah chapter 32, that's where Molech, the great God, where the children of Israel brought their little babies down, and they offered their babies as a human sacrifice to the God of Molech where those babies were burned up in the fire. This is what you find in the Bible when God tells them not to let their children pass through the fire. It's the fire of Molech that they were actually taking their children down. Men who and women who claim to be following God, taking their children down and delivering them into the hands of this brazen God by which would consume their children and destroy their children through the fire. It's hard for us to believe today it's hard for us to believe today that any mother or father could ever do that to their children. That's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Nobody does it today literally. You wouldn't find any mom or dad on this planet that would literally take their baby down and put it in the hands of a false god that would devour that. That is unthinkable. It happened literally in the Old Testament. Men and women who claimed to believe God offered up their children for sacrifice to the God of this world. And yet, we wouldn't even think of doing that literally today. But let me tell you something. God's people do it all the time spiritually. They live one thing at home. They live something else. And when they wake up in the morning after 20, 30 years and their kids are out in the world and lost their kids to the world, they scratch their heads and say, what happened? What took place? What transpired? It's simple. Just as the Old Testament Jew believed they were following God, lied to themselves, forsook the Word of God and the principles of God and delivered their children down to the hands of that pagan God, we do it today spiritually with our children by not setting the concepts that we need to have and them going to the world just as sure as they took them down in the Valley of Gehenna back in the Old Testament. The parallels are incredible. In chapter 10, we see it continue. This is all dealing with the problems they've got. In chapter 10, we find the great, uh, the great picture of what we call Christmas. And we find the great Christmas tree being cut out of the tree, out of the woods, put in a house and in putting silver balls and gold and decking it all over the place. And we understand that, uh, you know, the, the ramifications of that in the Bible, how that it, it had nothing to do with Christ's birthday. Christ wasn't born on December 25th. He's born in the Feast of Tabernacles in September 20th through 24th, if you know your Bible. And you know that all this has to do with Christianity when Constantine brings it in. You know, old Chris Kringle and old Saint Nick, that's the Roman Catholic patron saint for children. We find in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible covers all the bases. Chapter 2, verse 6, you find a guy coming down saying, Ho, ho, who comes down from the land of the north. All connected with what we've got when we have Christ Mass, which we call Christmas. It all comes into Christianity, and uh, the nation of Israel is told to not be deceived like the pagans. Now, you know me, and I know you, and I'm telling you right now. I'm not telling you that so you'll abolish Christmas in your home. I'm not telling you that so you won't have a bale pole inside your house. I'm not telling you that so you won't sing Christmas carols and have eggnog with booze in it and get everybody drunk so you can get more presents out of it. I'm not telling you that at all. What I'm telling you is, understand what's going on in the world. I don't care if you partake in it or you don't. I'm not a Jehovah Witness. I don't, I don't forsake Christmas. Hey, I like getting presents just like everybody else. And I, you know what? Size 33, 15 and a half. Man, I need to tell you, you know what? Everybody does. I'm not fighting it. 
I'm not one of these guys that gets up and takes that kind of stand. You're an idiot in the world today if you try to do that. All I'm trying to get you to do is understand where it comes from. I just want you to understand where it comes from. We grew up, you know what? I used to drop stuff like Santa Claus on my kids. I don't need as much padding now if I would do it as I did back then, but I did it. And you know what? They knew the difference. It wasn't like, you know, y'all, you're deceiving your kids. You're deceiving your kids. Let me tell you something. Some of the parents that talk about you who do this fun thing for your kids, deceiving your kids, are the biggest deceivers of their kids you ever saw on this planet. Kids need to know the truth. They need to know the truth. It was tough for me when I was 12 years old, found out there wasn't an Easter bunny. I wept for days. But you know what? I got over it, I think. But you find it all through here, chapter 11 through chapter 33. You find Israel's judgment during the tribulation period. You find in chapter uh, 16, verse 13, they're cast out of the land and they're being hunted by the Antichrist. In chapter 20, you find how that they, Israel hates Jeremiah because of his negative message. They want to put a positive spin on everything that Jeremiah does. And of course, Jeremiah has one thing that he says, and that is God's judgment is coming, and no matter how you want to dress it up, now how you want to paint it up, now how you want to clean it up, it's still far short of what God expected, and God's judgment's coming. And in chapter 21 through chapter 33, you find the end of the first prophecy. And you find the sin that leads Israel's demise and his total captivity is one of walking away from God, walking away from God's Word, bringing in all the false gods, doing everything in their Christian lives that have nothing to do with the Bible, and forsaking the God and the things of God for their own prosperity and for their own goodwill. Then you have the second prophecy. This prophecy to Jerusalem, chapter 34 through chapter 45. In chapter 34 through chapter 36, you find the Bible says this in 34.1. The word that came from Jeremiah. Jeremiah preaches a number of sermons in the book of Jeremiah. They're great sermons. You can go back and you can get bracket them. You ought to see how many there are. It just goes through and you can get sermon after sermon after sermon. This boy is preaching his heart out to the nation of Israel uh, and he's got a message from God. And it says in 34 verse 1, just one of the many places that it says... The word that came from Jeremiah. And oh, how you see in these passages how they hate God's word. And they burn it up in chapter 36. Cut it up. And they try to get rid of it. Chapter 37 through chapter 45. You find the religious apostasy that replaces God and his word. And you find a new title in the Bible that shows up. It actually shows up in chapter 7. But it's defined in chapter 44. This new title is part of their new religion. You see, the nation of Israel never, there wasn't a case where, and you've got to understand this, because this lies the parallels. It wasn't a thing that they, they turned their back on God and said, we're all atheists. It wasn't a thing where they said, we're not going to believe in God anymore, and we're going to do our own thing, and we're going to go into Satan worship. It wasn't that way at all. They never lost their concept of a higher being. They never lost their concept of a supreme God. What they did was dump his word so they could make their own concept of God, who they wanted him to be, and although they tried to maintain their religious appearance and maintain their religious church services and maintain all the things that give the appearance of being godly, they were so far away from God, so far into the, uh, the depths of sin, religious apostasy, that it's hardly recognizable from what God wanted him to be. And when you come to chapter 44, you find the find a new term that shows up in chapter 7. They've added a new dimension to the religion now. She's called the Queen of Heaven. We now have a female deity being introduced into the nation of Israel. This female deity is typified back a little bit farther by Jezebel. 
And she represents for us the Queen of Heaven that we all know and love so well today uh, that we have in our own world. And she's been, she's been different people down through history as different religions always want to add a female deity to a male deity uh, as all the heathen nations do. So we see uh, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 34 through chapter 45 in the second prophecy, we see Israel apostasy as she replaces God, and she replaces God's word, and she begins to add to her religion all of the things from her own heart that she wants to believe. Then we come to the third prophecy, and this prophecy is on the Gentile nations. This is chapter 46 through chapter 52. It all deals with Nebuchadnezzar coming down and scattering the Jews. Then those nations that line up with him, oh, this is very important, they justify themselves and they say because the Jews turn their backs on God, because the Jews, this is unsaved nations now. The unsaved nations had it figured out more than the nation of Israel did. They're looking and they're saying because this nation rejected God, we are justified in coming down and judging them. Well, they say in chapter 50, verse 7, all that found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, We offend not because they have sinned against the Lord. The habitation of justice, that's Jerusalem, the land. Even the Lord, the hope of their fathers. And they justify themselves. They justify the killing of Jews. It was the Roman Catholic Church all down through the Dark Ages. All down through the, up to the middle of the 1800s. It was the Roman Catholic Church that justified the killing of Jews taking their land, taking their valuables, casting them out of their nations. It was the Roman Catholic Church and some of the Puritan groups who persecuted the nation of Israel, and their defense for doing it was they're Christ killers. They killed Christ, so we have every right to persecute them because they have killed Christ. And that's exactly what you've got right here. Then in chapter 52... In chapter 52, you find Nebuchadnezzar coming down in 606 B.C. And when he comes down in 606 B.C., I can't even describe to you the bloodbath that took place when Nebuchadnezzar comes down. I cannot even tell you the debacle, how this was. I mean, it makes what Adolf Hitler did to him from between 1938 and 1945 look like a Sunday school picnic. I mean, when Nebuchadnezzar comes down, he literally tears that place apart. He butchers them. He hangs them upside down. He does some of the most unbelievable atrocities you have ever seen or heard in your life. It's absolutely, absolutely a bloodbath. And I'm telling you, when you come through and you look at it doctrinally and historically, you find that historically it actually happened. It actually took place. And you're going to find that doctrinally it's going to happen again. We're seeing the scenes right now unfold all around this world. We're seeing, as I said last week, in our own political environment, the groundwork in America for us turning our backs on the nation of Israel. We're seeing right now, it was just in a newspaper last week, or on the news, that Joseph Lieberman, who's a Jew, he's a Democrat, and he likes Bush simply because of the fact, I mean, he doesn't agree with everything, and he's certainly not going to vote Republican. But the one thing he likes Bush is the fact that Bush is pro-Israel, and the one thing that he wanted a clear statement on from Kerry is this. If you get president, will you continue the national policy toward the nation of Israel? Kerry wouldn't give him an answer. Kerry wouldn't give him an answer. I'd give you the answer for him if you'd like, but I'm telling you what, this thing's going to turn. This thing's going to turn. And the next two weeks, next three weeks in America, the next 28, 21 days are going to be the determining factor. You better get your sideline seat. On election night, 
get some people over, pop some popcorn, get you some pop, order a pizza, sit down and watch with great fervor the beginning of the destruction of the end of America and the end of the world and get a front row seat because it's going to be a show. I'm telling you, this thing is going to change. This thing is going to change. And if it doesn't change this time, it'll certainly change next time. But boy, it's going to be tough. You ain't, you know what? We have an election on that one, whenever night it is, the second or the third, whenever night we get on. And the next morning, you always find out who the president is. You ain't going to find out who the president is the next morning. This thing's going to be tied up in the courts and legal things for the next six months. I'm telling you what. It's going to be a knockdown drag out. I'm telling you, you live in exciting times, man. Yeah, I'm always looking through there, man. I'm always looking with those things. When you got all the president standing there, you know, and he's talking, or you're fighting the United Nations, and all those people standing around, I'm always looking for that little guy that might be the Antichrist in there someplace, you know, just kind of walking back there, you know, just kind of checking things out, waiting his time, buying his time, you know, carrying a baby as he walks by and gives you that look, you know, and then keeps on going. I'm always looking for him, man. I'm always looking for him. Anyway, now, that's what you got doctrinally, historically. But I got to say to you, I got to say to you, inspiration of this book is incredible. It's incredible because of the parallels. We're living in a time of the church where the church had a mission just like Israel had a mission. And the church has failed in that mission just like Israel has failed in that mission. And they failed for the same reasons. They had their mission, we have our missions. They went into their apostasy, we are in our apostasy. In both cases, it started with a rejection and turning your back on the Word of God. So when it comes to the book of Jeremiah, I know of no other book in all of the Bible that really shows you the negative slant to modern Bible Christianity. Now, you're told today and you're given, I mean, all the positive spin, you know, that this is a great time in Christianity. I hear people say all the time, you know, that, oh, God is getting in control and God's doing some great things. And the truth of the matter is, God isn't doing anything. God, my friend, has turned His attention to the nation of Israel. We saw that as we come through the books of the Bible. And what you're seeing around America today called Christianity is just like you would have saw back in uh, Second Chronicles when you walked down the street of Jerusalem and walked into the church there in Jerusalem and you'd, everybody was saying, Oh, God's doing such great things, when the reality is God wasn't doing anything. And boy, Jeremiah is filled with it. And I, we don't have time to get into all of it, but we want to look at some of it today. And the first thing I want to show you is found in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. The greatest passage, as far as I'm concerned, in all of the Bible on God calling men to preach and to pastor. He says this, 1-4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctify thee and ordain thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, this, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and to build and to plant. Ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the greatest passages in all the Bible that shows you the power of the preaching of the Word of God. I don't know if you picked it up in this passage when I read or not, <coughs> But we're not talking about winning people to Christ here. I don't know if you saw that or not. 
He didn't make one reference to anybody getting saved or anybody uh, becoming a Christian. No, no, no. He's talking about somebody as a preacher overthrowing nations. Overthrowing nations. And he doesn't overthrow nations by getting politically involved. Did you notice that? No moral majority here. No Christian coalition here. No bunch of Christian preachers and everybody getting around the bandwagon, getting politically motivated to get people out to vote. No, no, no. No, this passage is telling you that if you want to change the world, if you want to change the world, and God wants us to change the world, but if you're going to change the world, you've got to do a number of things. And the first thing you've got to realize is that you are a child and you have no power of your own, no education, no great aptitude, no great... Uh, IQ, you are a child, and if God doesn't touch your lips with His hand and put His words in your mouth, you ain't got anything to say. But when He does, when He does, when a man stands up in a pulpit with the power of God in his life and the Word of God in his hand, and God has touched his lips with the Word of God, look what takes place. This is the job of a pastor. He says, verse 10, See, I have this day set thee over nations and over kingdoms. One, to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down. You've got to have a negative message first before you can have a positive message. People have to understand what the problem is before they can fix it. And he says this man stands there and the first thing he does is he roots out. You do that by preaching. When you root it out, then you pull it down. When you pull it down, you hold it up for what it is, and you destroy it. And then you throw it down. And then, when you get that kind of ungodliness out of people's lives, then, and only then, can you build and you can plant. I don't know why it's so tough. Anybody that ever went in the Army, anybody ever went in the Marine Corps, anybody ever went in the military service knows that they follow a basic Bible 101 plan to make you a soldier. They tear you down, they root you out, they knock you down, they throw you down, and then when they take you down so far and tell you you're absolutely the worthless, most slime thing in the world, and they root out, tear down, pull down, throw down, and destroy everything about you, when they get you to that point, then they build you up the way they want you and send you forth as a United States Marine, as a U.S. soldier, as a U.S. sailor, or U.S. airman, whatever the case. Then they send you out. It's the only way that it works. And that is the job of Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah to go to the nation of Israel to root out, to pull down, to destroy. Not to get hung up on who he was, but to realize that he was a child, just like Jesus said. And he had to depend. And God said, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their faces. I'll be with you. And when I give you and touch and put my words into your mouth, you speak to them my words. And brother, there's nothing like the power of the Word of God. Well, I remember one time in the New Testament when they were coming to take Jesus. And a whole band of them was walking led by Judas. And Jesus just spoke some words out of his mouth. And they all fell back on the ground, the Bible says. That word's got power. And the reason why the church doesn't have any power, because the church don't have the word. Now, I'll tell you something else that shows up the first time in the book of Jeremiah. And you better get this down. It's the word pastor. It's the word pastor. You find it in chapter 2, verse 8. You know, there's nine times in your Bible where you find the word pastor. Eight of them are in the book of Jeremiah. One of them's over there in Ephesians 4. Eight times you find in the book of Jeremiah when there's only nine times in the Bible 
You know why? Because Jeremiah was sent to be a pastor. And you find out what kind of pastor he was versus the kind of pastor the other guys was. Oh, it's great. You know what it shows you? It shows you the two kinds of pastors you're going to have back in Israel right before God's judgment. And you want to put a... You want to put an inspirational slant on it? It shows you the two kinds of pastors you're going to have today right before God's judgment falls. Because in chapter 2, verse 8 through 13, it shows you what the pastors did, now and then. Verse 11 of chapter 2 says that they changed God's glory. Verse 13 of chapter 2 says, God says, uh, My people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken God. Two, they have taken the word of God. And they have forsaken God and His Word, likened to a bubbling brook. And then the Bible says that they have made their own cistern. Now, a cistern is something that holds water. And God says, i got two problems with the nation of Israel. One, they changed my glory. Two, they took my Word and they made... Man, my Word was to them the water of life. And they made man-made wells, man-made cisterns that do not hold water. And I'm telling you, my friend, he's telling you very clearly and plainly that back then they denied God and His Word. And today, God's men, God's pastors have denied God and His Word. We got a bunch of Bibles running around today that just simply don't hold any water. They just simply do not work. They're man-made. They're man-devised. They're man-put together. They have no power in them whatsoever. And you begin to see as you come down through this great book from a practical standpoint, oh, how great. Oh, then we get to chapter 6, verse 16. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, wherein is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your soul. I can, when I contemplated when we were going to start a church again, and we were going to look at what God did, me and Mark May were studying the Bible together. And Mark said, you know what, he gave me a verse, and he showed me, a, showed me this verse right here. And I said, you know what, Mark, that's a great verse. And you know what, I can't think, the day and age that we're living in, and where we're at, and what we're faced with, if you want to, I mean, you know, churches call themselves everything today. And I'm not against whatever you call it. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I've never been very good at church names. I told you that before. If somebody's, you know, if you're going to really put your name to what the Bible says, you got to call it in your face Baptist church. I mean, that... That, that's more appropriate to where we're supposed to be at, but people would be offended at that. But when I saw that verse, I thought to myself, you know what? We're living in a Laodicean church period. We're living in a time where pastors have denied the Word of God. They're trying to teach people at a man-made cistern that don't hold water. They're wondering why the people are dying and people are messed up spiritually and people having all kinds of problems. I'm telling you what, you know what this world needs to get back to? It needs to get back on the old paths. That's what it needs. And I thought to myself, that's going to be the name of our church, Old Paths Baptist Church. A church that stands for the old ways. A church that's not going to be very popular. A church that probably won't build a lot of people. But a church that will stand for the good way and walk therein. And a place where if you believe what the Bible says, in a world of turmoil, in a world of uncertainty, in a world of topsy-turvy a mess, you can find rest for your soul. Ah, but they say, but they said, we will not walk therein. They didn't want any part of it. They didn't want any part of it then, just like a lot of God people don't want any part of it now. You know why? Because they were playing church back then, just like they're playing church now. They had their big buildings then, just like they got them now. They had the, they had the great, uh, of all the notoriety and being somebody big and popular and famous and rich and having all the Adelaides of all the things, and they wanted that over there, what they wanted, the Word of God. Oh, it is so clear, the parallel between these great books. Then you get into chapter 16, verses 11 through 18. 
My, 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 what a great chapter this is. What a great chapter this is on showing you the storyline of the history of the nation of Israel. How in verse 13, God says, I'm going to cast you out of the land. He did that in 606 B.C. Then you come on down through there and he says a great story. He says, you know what? I'm going to cast you out of the land. That happens. But he says, you know what I'm going to do? He says, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to call for the fishers. And I'm going to send fishers after you. Somebody says, what's he talking about? He's talking about the church age. Don't you know Jesus said we're to be fishers of men? During the church age, we're fishing for Jews. We're fishing for them with everybody else. We're winning them to Christ. So he says, I'm going to cast you out of the land. But then I, in a little while, I'm going to send the fishers after you. And I'm going to send forth the fishermen that they win you to Christ. But then they're coming a time when the fishing stops and he sends the hunters after them. And that, my friend, the tribulation period. The church age, he sends the fishers. Tribulation, he sends the hunters. And let me tell you something, the Antichrist will get them out of the rocks, get them out of the caves, get them out of the holes, just like the SS troops got them out of the Warsaw Ghetto during World War II. They'll hunt them down. They'll kill them. They'll find them wherever they can. They'll hunt them day and night. They'll never rest. They'll never stop. Until God comes in and intervenes, they will be hunted, and they will be hunted, and they will be hunted. But right now, we're still fishing for them. Right now, we're, they're still fishing. Right now, we're to be fishers of men. God says, I'll cast them out of the land, but then he says, I'll send the fishers, and then I'll send the hunters. Chapter 17, verse 9. Probably one of the greatest verses in the Bible. This shows you and me how rotten we are. This is why people don't like the Bible. We like to think of ourselves as being good. We like to think of ourselves as being better than we are. We delude ourselves. We all, uh, we all, uh, we all follow the line where we think, you know, it's easy for us to read our own press releases, you know, and think, how good we really are. Yet the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, great verse. One of the greatest verses of all the Bible, talking about your heart. For it says, my friend, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? Who can know it? It asks the question. It says, your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Then the answer comes in verse 10, the next verse. I, the Lord, search the hearts. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. You know why men don't like the Word of God? You know why Christians want to get rid of the Bible? You know why preachers and pastors want to get rid of the Bible? You know why, why we're living in a day and age where we, you can't find a Bible, that nobody's got a Bible, that you couldn't find a Bible from the Word of God if your life depended on it? The same way it was back in Israel. They wanted to get rid of it back there because nobody likes the book that tells you your heart is dirty. We like to hear the good things. That's why when you go to Baptist churches today, that's why when you go this and you go that, all you hear is the good things. All you hear is the marshmallow things. You don't hear anybody preaching on sin anymore. You don't hear anybody preaching on religious apostasy anymore. It's all about the good things. And because we want to believe that we're basically good when the Bible says we're basically wicked and our heart is deceitful and we deceive ourselves and we want nothing to do with a book. We want nothing to do with a book that points out how rotten we really are when we're striving so hard in the day and age that we live to be what we think we ought to be. We don't want to really deal with reality. Reality is the missing word in a 20th century, 21st century Christian's life. There is no reality. It's a dream world. It's a bunch of fun times where everybody just thinks that God is here and God is there when God is nowhere. I've told you before, you can't trust your feelings. That's why the Bible is so important. That's why it's so absolutely important. I'm going to show you in a minute. This thing's going to even get more detailed here. I, I, you cannot trust your feelings. 
Your feelings will give you the wrong value system every time. Your system will give your, your, your feelings will give you the wrong concept every time. Why? Because your heart basically is wicked. And you need to have God's heart. And the only way you can get God's heart is to get God's word. And when you get God's word, then you have the absolute defining concepts. You may not like it. You may not want it. You may turn your back on it. But the bottom line is, you got the bottom line. And that's what we need in our lives. And you'll find that this great chapter goes along with Romans chapter 8, how God searches the hearts, how the Spirit of God searches our hearts. That's why many times we don't get the prayers answered the way we should. That's why many times we, the things in our life don't go the way we want them to. We can't understand why, because our heart's a long way from God's heart. We don't understand what God's doing because we're so out of far out of touch with God, it's unbelievable. Interesting story in the New Testament. I've seen it many, many times, and I've thought about it many, many times. I'm not remembering for sure where it's at, but it's a story where Jesus was just a little child. He's going with his parents on a trip somewhere, and they're walking down the road, and he's got his brothers and sisters along there, and they're going down there. You know what kids do? They're probably out, you know, running around and doing all those things, and the kids do, you know. And the Bible goes and says that uh, for after two, two, or so, two, two or three days, parents look around and say, where's Jesus at? He wasn't anywhere to be found. And they finally find him teaching somewhere in the temple. But you know what the moral of that story is? His own family lost him for two and three days and didn't even know he was gone. Well, let me just tell you something. If Jesus' family who walk with him, feed him, talk to him, clothe him, put him in bed at night, if they can lose him for two or three days and not even know he's missing, how much more as we as a child of God can think he's in our life when he slipped away a long time ago and he's no longer walking with us, and we still think he is. I'm telling you, there's only one thing that keeps you where you know God is still in your life. I'm not talking about being saved and lost. I'm talking about after you are saved, being in fellowship and having his hand in your life. There's only one thing, and that is his heart versus your heart. You have to get the value system in your life where you understand what that word says, and you make it part of your life and everything that you do. Then the next thing. Oh, chapter 18. My, 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 boy, what time I could spend on this, the great message, the great story, found in chapter 18, verse 2, where it simply says, let's go down to the potter's house. That great picture, that great story of how you and I are just a piece of clay, like a, on a potter's wheel, and how the master craftsman takes a lump of clay that is worthless, that is shapeless, that is formless, and because of the majesty of the master craftsman hands he puts that lump of clay on a wheel that wheel turns around and he takes those hands and he applies it to that clay and he takes that old ugly lump of clay and fashions it into a vessel fit for the master's youth what a picture of God's hand in your life and my life that's what God wants to do God wants to take you and me and the Bible teaches all through the word of God that clay is a picture of our human bodies our frailties. Clay looks beautiful. Clay can be painted to look majestically. But clay is very fragile and you drop it and it'll break and shatter in a million pieces. But you know what? When you see that story there, that story is a picture of God wanting to mold the nation of Israel. Absolutely. But it's also a picture of God wanting to mold your life and my life. It's a picture of you and me as just a piece of clay that God found out of this old earth. And God thought enough of you to put you on that potter's wheel and God wants to mold you and make you fit for the master's use. 
Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, in a great house, he says there's vessels of honor and there's vessels of dishonor. Romans chapter 9, verse 21 talks about vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. The bottom line is this. God can only work with what we bring him. And you totally give yourself to God and you say, God, make me to use me the way you want me to be. Take my whole body, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, and make me, complete me, and God will put you on that wheel and God will mold you and make you exactly what he wants you to be and you'll be fit for his use. You just give him part of you, you just give him someone of you, or give, you, give him none of you. And you know what? He has nothing to work with. You know what Christianity is? It's so simple. It's so basic. The elementary stories in the Bible make becoming a strong Christian so easy and understandable. It's simply this. God will make you whatever you will allow him to make you to be. You don't become a strong Christian by just waking up some morning. You become a strong Christian because you allowed the hands of the master to mold you and to make you the way he wanted to. You give him everything. You don't hold anything back. You give him everything. You, he has your finances. He has your job. He has your family. He has your wife. He has you. He has everything. There's nothing left that his. Everything's on the potter's wheel. And God molds it and makes it. And I promise you, when he's done, it'll be a lot better than if you would have just stayed as a lump of, lump of clay. God will mold you and make you. What a great story that is. Then chapter 22 through chapter 28. Probably the greatest verse in all the Bible that deals with the deity of Christ. And I want to I read for you here. It says, verse 28, 22, 28, 29. This man, Kaniah, a despised, broken idol, is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out? He and his seed are cast into a land which they know not. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. You know what? Most people read that, don't know what they're reading. Well, that verse right there is the greatest verse in the Bible that proves that Jesus Christ had to be eternal, that he could not have a human father. That, was, that is the last great prophecy given concerning the nation of Israel. That prophecy simply says this. No man of earthly descent will ever sit on the throne of David ever again. You see, God had had it with the nation of Israel. And this man, Jeconiah, Jeconiah means Jehovah will establish. But he is so wicked. He's turned his back on God's word so much in the things of God. God despises him and hates him so much. He says he's a broken vessel. And Kaniah, his name gets changed to Kaniah. Kaniah means despise, broken idol. And when God looks at him, he says, you know what? I'm going to bring an end to the nation of Israel. I'm going to bring an end to them, and I'm going to bring in the time to the Gentile. But before I do, I'm going to give a prophecy. And that prophecy is going to fix once and for all that no man from planet Earth, no earthly human being, can ever sit on the throne of Jerusalem again. And so he gives the prophecy about Kaniah that no man of his seed will ever prosper sitting on the throne of Judah again. That there never will be another human man that will sit on the throne of Jerusalem. That the next one will be the Lord Jesus Christ. 
This signals the end of the kingdom of heaven. He says, oh earth, oh, he wants the whole earth to know that there's not going to be another human Jewish king on the throne of Jerusalem that Kaniah, Jeconiah, now changed to Kaniah, is going to be the last one that God is ripping the kingdom of heaven from their hand and he's going to take Jehoiakim, change his name to Kaniah, despise broken idol, and fix that no earthly man will ever sit on the throne again. Now when you come down through the genealogies, you'll find that Kaniah is in the line of Joseph. So when you come to Matthew chapter 1 and you find the kingly line that deals with the king, you find Christ's genealogy coming through David as the son of David. Oh, but when you find his human line in Luke chapter 3, it doesn't come down through Joseph. It comes down through Mary because of the fulfillment of this prophecy that his seed couldn't run down through Joseph because that line was cursed as far as the throne was concerned. It now has to come through his mother. You know why? Because Jesus didn't have an earthly father. He is God's son. God planted that seed in that virgin's womb, nurtured that seed, and brought forth the man-child that was going to rule all nations. He has no earthly father. He has no human bloodline. Acts chapter 20, verse 20 says, The blood that flowed through his veins was the blood of God, God's blood. That's why when John saw it back there in the Gospel of John, he said, Water and blood came out, and he testified to that. And when you go back to 1 John, you find what the water and blood represents. He couldn't have had an earthly father. He was not of Kaniah's seed. The difference between him is he may be in the king's line, but he's not in the human line because he is the divine son of God. Incredible prophecy. Then in chapter 23, you find the great contrast between a preacher with the word of God and a man without the word of God. He says in verse 20, watch this very carefully, or at least listen to it if you're not going to turn to it. The anger of the Lord shall not return until he have executed, until he have performed, watch it, the thoughts of his heart. That's what the Word of God is. That's all the Bible is. The Word of God is a re recording of the thoughts of God's heart. That's what the Bible is. That's how you get the heart of God. That's how you overcome your deceitful, wicked heart. You let God's heart be your heart. You take what he loves versus what you want to love. You hate what he hates. I've said it many, many times, hundreds of times, that you take the Word of God and make what He loves what you love, what He hates, what His opinions, your opinions. Because the Bible says the Word of God are the thoughts of His heart. Now watch this. In the latter days, me and you, church age, latter days, in the latter days, ye, me and you, shall consider it. Consider what? The heart of God? Perfectly. You know Why? Because you got a perfect book that is a perfect record of the heart of God. That in the days that we live right now, with so much turmoil, so much uncertainty, so much, so many lies, so many, so many, so many false messages, so many false concepts, that you and I can have a book that contains the very thoughts of God, thoughts of God's about His return. Thoughts of God about His judgment. Thoughts of God about His love. The thoughts of God about everything. In the latter days, the church age, we can consider it perfectly. His heart versus our heart. Look at verse 25 and 26. I have heard what the prophet said. That prophesy lies in my name. 
saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall this be in the hearts of the prophet that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of deceit of their own hearts. And he just told you in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart was deceitfully wicked above all things, desperately wicked. You know what the difference is today? The difference is clear, and it's real simple. You're either going to have a pastor that has God's heart, or you're going to have a pastor that has his own heart. It's as simple as that. You've got God's people fall into two categories. It's not complicated. It's not hard. I told you before, this whole issue on the issue of all the translations is much more complicated than it is. You only got two. One's God's, one's the devil's. You only got two. There may be 25,000 translations out there. You've got two Bibles. One of them God, the rest of them the devil. You know what? It's the same way with man's heart. You either have a pastor that has the heart of God or you have a pastor that follows his own heart. That's what it says. You either have a Bible that's the thoughts of God's heart that you can consider everything in the latter days perfectly or you rely on somebody that gives you vain lives and prophesies lies who are prophesying after the deceits of their own hearts. Man, how much simple can it get? And then if that wasn't enough, by the time we get to chapter 36, oh, this is my favorite chapter in Jeremiah. Chapter 36, somewhere along chapter 36, if you have a wide margin Bible, you don't have to write it in now, but put it in your brain to write this in. This is one of the great monkey wrench chapters in all of the Bible. You know, the Bible's a toolbox, you know that? That's what it is. The Bible says you and I are to be a workman. And when you and I are to be a workman, how do you be a workman unless you have tools? And the Bible's your toolbox. And I have found this to be true in the 30-some years that I've studied the Bible. I've found that there are are a number of tools in the toolbox. But there's one tool that is in here many more times than anything else, and that's a monkey wrench. And my expression is simply this. God's got a monkey wrench that will fend any nut in this world. God is famous for throwing monkey wrenches in the middle of theological organizations. And I'm telling you, that's what I love about the Bible. Because I hear so much growing up as a young man. And what this chapter deals with is one of the greatest controversies, if not the controversy in Christianity today. And that controversy is over the original manuscripts. How many times I've heard growing up somebody talk about the fact, well now, and correct my Bible by saying, well, the original manuscripts don't say that. How many times I've heard preachers say, We believe the Bible is the absolute infallible Word of God. And when you ask them, they say, well, we believe that in the original autographs. Well, let me just say this to you. First of all, nobody's ever had the original autographs. The word Bible means book. There was never in a time in the history of the world where the original autographs were ever in one book. So what you're saying then to me, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine, is that the book that you're talking about, the Bible, which contained the original manuscript, never existed, no one has ever read it, and it has never been found anywhere on planet Earth, right? You think that when Paul wrote the New Testament, he had the original book of Moses? Now, here's the deal. In this thing of Bible Christianity, we're into mysticism. We get on the Roman Catholic Church because the priest gets up there and says, fee fi fo fum I smell the blood of an Englishman, and turns the water and the wafer into blood and bread. But the same Baptist scholars get up, and they'll talk about the fact the mystical, the mystical originals which they have that they look into that nobody's ever seen to tell you what the Bible means. Jeremiah chapter 36 is the monkey wrench that fits that. And let me just make a blanket statement. God cares nothing, absolutely nothing, 
about the original manuscripts. There isn't one verse in the Bible anywhere that says the original manuscripts are inspired. Bible says, well, the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration. Certainly you're not as dumb to think that the original manuscripts were Scripture. They were not. There isn't any place in the Bible anywhere that God puts any emphasis, even mentions the originals other than here. And when He mentions it here, He mentions to show you how little He cares about it. Because look at the problem you got. The originals. Oh, how many times I've heard it. Well, the originals. How many times those young boys coming out of Bible colleges bought into that hook, line, and sinker? Well, you got to have the originals. The originals. Every new translation on the market says, compared with the originals, which nobody's ever seen. Now, here's what you got. This is God's monkey wrench, my favorite chapter. I call this the story of Dr. Jehudi and the originals. Because in chapter 36, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, you know what God says? God said to Jeremiah, get a piece of paper and write down my words. And Jeremiah faithfully writes down the words of God as God gave them to Jeremiah. Now, I've already told you that they, Israel hated Jeremiah, and they hated God, and they hated God's word. Watch the parallels. So, Dr. Jehudi... Ph.D. Bible scholar of the great Jerusalem uh, Conservatory of Great Understanding, Dr. Jehudi down there in verse 23 and 24, he gets a copy of Jeremiah and he says, hmm, yes, the words of God. And the Bible says that he takes a penknife and cuts out what he doesn't like and takes what he cuts out and throws it into the fire. The only problem with he didn't like any of it, and by the time he was done with it, there wasn't any book left. There goes the first set of originals out of Jeremiah. So when a man tells you that the book of Jeremiah and your new translation, or he studied the originals, uh-uh, the originals went in the fire with one of his brethren, Dr. Jehudi. Now let's continue on as the mock thickens. In chapter, in verse 32, oh, Jeremiah takes another roll of the book and he writes another set of originals of Jeremiah. But oh my goodness, what's happened here? It clearly tells you this set of originals doesn't match the last set of originals. It says it has many like words. It's not the same. You know why it's not the same? Because God didn't give a flip about the originals, never intended anybody to have them, never held them up as some holy thing. God gave you a book that has exactly what He wants you to have out of everything He said, translated in the language of the day, universal language of the world, exactly the way God wants you to have it, and the originals don't ever figure into it. Now you got a second set. Now you got a second set. But they don't match. Oh, now what do we got? Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 61 through 31. Or through 61 through, I can't read it. Whatever I wrote in there that ran off the page. Just start in 61 and follow your nose. You'll get it. The second set gets thrown in the river. Now we get a third set. So when somebody comes to talk about the originals, the original, original, God's already showed you that the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah... He has three sets of originals that we know about, and the first two don't even match. 
This myth about the mystical, magical originals of God being so important. It's nothing but a farce. The great monkey wrench is, my friend, God doesn't want you worrying about some dead original someplace held over there, held up in some mystical, magical way, some formula. Let me tell you, God gave you a book in the language of the people that has the very pattern and the hearts and the thoughts of God's heart in it. And don't change it one bit. It's just the way God wants you to have it. Then we move into chapter 46 through chapter 52 and we come into the, the last section here. This is the Gentiles' fate. And in chapter 46 through chapter 52, we see the enemies of Israel being judged by God. Chapter 46, Egypt. Chapter 47, Philistines. Chapter 48, Moab. Chapter 49, the Ammonites. Chapter 50, 51, and 52, Babylon, Assyrian, and Chaldeans. And the Bible says, so Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that should come upon Babylon, even the words that are written against Babylon, and he closes out the book. He closes out the book on the judgment of the Gentile nations who go against his people, showing you clearly that God is going to protect the nation of Israel and God is going to restore them. But I got one last thing I want to say. We've talked about pastors today. We talked about pastors that had hearts, had the heart of God versus pastors who preached their own heart. We talked about pastors that changed the God's glory and yuned out cisterns that didn't hold any water versus the men that gave you the word of God. We made the parallels and showed you how that's the way the leaders were in Israel and that's the way the leaders are today. But the last thing I want to give you today is found in chapter 48, verse 10. And this is probably the greatest verse given to any man that ever preaches the word of God. This is probably the greatest verse, the greatest commission. We saw in Jeremiah chapter 1 how Jeremiah was told to root up, tear down, blow up, shoot out, and then build and plant. Well, here's what you do. When you get into the pulpit to preach, here's what you do. When you open up the Word of God, here's what you have in mind. Because here's what he says. This is the greatest condemnation on 20th century preachers and pastors the world has ever seen. And it will come to pass at the, great, at the judgment seat of Christ. It says, Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully. And cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. That Bible says the Word of God like a sharp two-edged sword. And that's how you use it. When you step into the pulpit and you preach the Word of God, you don't hold back your sword. You preach the Word of God. You give them the truth of God. You give it to them just the way God said to give it to them. You give it the way, just the way Jeremiah did. You won't be popular. They'll lie about you. They'll, they'll connive everything in the world to get rid of you. But you know what? God's, when God has His hand on you and God touches your mouth and gives you the words to say, then just simply preach the words that He gives you. Don't ever, don't ever, in any situation, hold back your sword from blood. Though that doesn't mean you get up and act like an idiot all the time and shoot everybody to the ground. There's ways that you do it. But the bottom line is learn how to use truth and use it rightly. You're, don't flaunt your knowledge. Don't get up to the place where you want to show everybody how smart you are by making somebody else look bad. You learn how to use the knowledge that you have, but there's one thought in your heart, one thought in your mind. I don't care if it's Thursday night Bible study. I don't care if it's preaching on Sunday morning. I don't care if it's teaching guys in Joplin. I don't care if it's working with people one-on-one. -on -one. You never shortcut what the Word of God says. You never sugarcoat its point. You always allow the Word of God to do what God intended the Word of God to do, and that is to draw blood. You draw blood with it. You make people go home and say, ouch, that hurts. I'm going to think about it. Yeah, I don't do you any good. And I love you all. I, there's nobody in this world who loves you more than I do. 
Nobody. There ain't a pastor in this world that loves you more than, loves his people more than I love mine. I do anything in the world for you. But because I love you, because I do anything in the world for you, I don't do you any good by just always telling you how nice you are. You know what? The issues are the issues, and we have to deal with it because it's by dealing with them that we grow. And I mean, you may not like everything I say. You, it, may, it may hurt you. It may, you may get mad about it. It Whatever. There's been people that, in my life that heard me preach one time and never came back again. And it wasn't because I'm a nice guy, because I am a nice guy. It wasn't because that I don't have a congenial personality. I am the most congenial person you've ever met in your life, and I love everything and everybody, and I love birds, bees, dogs, cats. I'm not anybody. It was because of the truth of this book that you just don't like what God says, and you can't got enough nerve to go out and rip your clothes off at night in a full moon, get naked, and throw it out there and scream at God. You're going to take it on a poor little me when all I'm doing is preaching what the book says and you know what that's what my job is I'm a prophet I'm a prophet and if you're ever going to take a stand for God you're going to become one you're not a prophet where you're going to go out and split the Red Sea you're not a prophet where you're going to go out and call fire down from heaven you're not that kind of a prophet you've got a book that contains the prophecies and you preach those prophecies but when you open up the book everything in the back of your mind everything in your heart everything you say is designed for a purpose to make somebody think about God, look at God, consider who they are, and understand that, you know what? In this whole world, everything that I'm doing, every place I'm going, all the things I'm thinking about are going to mean absolutely nothing when it comes to God and get their focus back to where Israel needed their focus back and certainly the church and God's people need it back today, and that is on God and the Word of God. That's our job in everything that we do. You wouldn't think that having a Halloween party for kids would be drawing blood. I mean, we're not going to stand out there and pass out tracks, beat people over the head, and, 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 uh, and have Brother Cook over here make some really hot chili. And that go and save guys eating over there saying, hot, isn't it, huh? Well, where do you go to hell, buddy? You think that chili's hot? That's not what we're all about. That won't work. That's not what I mean by holding back your sword from blood. I don't mean over there, hey, smoke coming out of your ears. Hey, let me tell you something. What's it going to be like when you're in hell, buddy? You use wisdom. You use knowledge. You temper all that with a love for people. But you know what? That love for people doesn't, doesn't cancel out the truth of the Word of God. And you learn how to take the truth and present it in a way that people say, yeah, you're right. Let me tell you something. You give me anybody one-on-one -on -one and I will stick them so many times with the Word of God that they will bleed like a stuck pig. And you give me the right person and they'll walk out of here and they'll feel good about it. You know why? Because you've got to learn how to use that book. It's not a matter. Some guys think all you do is get up, scream, yell, jump down, throw things around a place and tell everybody they're dying and going to hell and boy, you did a great job. Let me tell you, that doesn't work for everybody. And there's a time for it and there's a time not for it. And there's a time when you've got to be able to take the Word of God. That Bible said that sharp, that sword, that Word of God is a sharp, two-edged sword. It's got two edges to it. Yes, I'll give, you the, I'll give it to you. The one side, the one edge is like a cavalry saber where you just slash and cut and you just take that thing and just slash and cut and slash and cut. The other side's like a fine surgeon's scalpel. And you've got to go in and you've got to cut right on the dotted line, man. You've got to cut that thing right perfectly. There's no margin for error. There's no error in it whatsoever. You've got to do it right where it needs to be done, right, finely cut it, define it, lay it out, and that's what you've got to do. And that's the ability of a young man or a young lady to be able to use the Word of God. That's what I call when I talk about a working knowledge of the Word of God. Jeremiah, one of the greatest books in the Bible that shows Israel and why they got the judgment of God, but at the same time shows us and why we've got the judgment of God coming. 
It's the same, it's same parallel on both ends. We're living inspirationally the time that Jeremiah lived. A time when Christianity has fallen apart, just like Israel fell apart. A time when they've forsaken everything about God. A time when they've got a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. And you and I have to learn how to use the Word of God. We have to learn how to discern to use the Bible to touch people's lives. We've got to love people. We've got to be open to people. We've got to listen to people. We've got to put up with things that people do. But the bottom line is, you never, never draw back your sword from blood. That's your job. You destroy, you tear down, you root up, and then you plant and you build. Building people's lives is what it's all about. Let's pray. Father.